amazing passage, shall we? Uh, we are in Ephesians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that an amazing prayer? Um, this morning I'd like to um, go through a few points together. I'd like to uh, give a, a bit of a, a context to Paul's prayer. Uh, I'd like to look at the, the heart posture that Paul has, both vertically and horizontally, in his prayer. And then I'd like to suggest five points, um, that we have a prayer for riches from the Father, a prayer for power by the Spirit, a prayer for life from the Son, to love like the Son, a prayer for fullness in God, and a prayer with great expectations. And uh, I just thought I'd mention, too, um, I've, I've come across some really helpful uh, books and resources, and uh, three that I, that, I, that I use a lot in preparation for this were uh, the book called Christ-Centered Preaching on Ephesians by Tony Merida, uh, the commentary on Ephesians by Brian Chappell, and uh, some, some video exposition on Ephesians by, by John Piper. So the context. Uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we dive into the deep truths of who we are in Christ. In the second half of Ephesians, starting from chapters uh, 4 through to 6, which we'll be going into next week, these passages help us understand how we are to live in Christ. The passage we're looking at today is Paul's second prayer, the first being in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And this, this prayer... Is, is a transition and, and a key in the flow of the book from what and who we are in Christ to how we are to live in Christ. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago um, and heard our brother Doug Virgin speak, uh, he was reminding us that the beginning of chapter 3 starts with the words, for this reason. And you'll notice that the beginning of verse 14, which is our prayer today, begins with, for this reason. And um, our brother Doug was reminding us that the verses 2 to 13 are a parenthesis, um, which Paul opens up before he continues his prayer in verse 14. And I think it's important to recognize this, uh, to, to be aware of what Paul is talking about before, at the end of chapter 2, to identify the context. Okay, so... Vertical posture, the heart of Paul, I've identified, I've identified two. First of all, humility. 
If you were to go to, if you were to, go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, uh, you'd probably, you probably find most Jews there uh, near the wall praying and standing. Jewish custom was normally to stand for prayer, and kneeling was reserved for great emotion and homage. We actually see this in the Old Testament when King Solomon was kneeling at the dedication of the temple. Uh, we find this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 12, and 13. Let me read it for you. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of, the, of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And Solomon goes on to dedicate the temple to the Lord. Another example of kneeling in scripture is in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. They say, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Kneeling is indicative of deep humility and awe. Earlier this year, I was part of a team that took 40 grade 9 students on a mission trip. We went around uh, different places around Montreal to show them needs in the community, to offer them places where they can serve. One of the places we went to was a Catholic church on the Ganawage Reserve. And while we were sitting in the pews, students were... Um, were a little bit puzzled at these strange footrests at, uh, at the feet of the pews. And eventually they, they had the courage to ask, well, what are these? And that's when they learned that uh, as part of the, the Catholic service, um, we often, we, you, you kneel down on these prayer kneelers. Um, and it was an interesting reminder that it's not often in our day-to-day -day that, that we see people kneeling. Now, what is it that brings Paul to his knees before the Father? So let's look at what Paul was speaking about at the end of chapter 2. Verse 18 through 22. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is in awe at the spiritual temple made up of all tribes and all nations and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And we even see in verse 10, the angels give glory to God for the beauty and the design of the church. And so just as King Solomon bowed before the temple at his dedication, Paul bows the knee as he contemplates the glory and the grace of God revealed in the church. And so we're called to have humble hearts before we, as we approach God. We've been included as part of God's great grace into his plan of redemption. What is the attitude of our hearts as we approach the Father? 
Now, Paul does not only approach the Father with humility, but I'd like to suggest he also approaches with confidence. Verses 11 and 12 say that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How is it that we can approach God with confidence? We're imperfect and undeserving. Our adoption into God's family grants us the privilege of his riches and the riches of his grace. We are sons and daughters of the Father through our faith in in Jesus. We are co-heirs with Christ and inheritors of the promise of God. Now, one of the greatest weapons that the enemy uses to disrupt our relationship with the Father is by convincing us of our guilt so that he would overwhelm us and cast doubt as to our true belonging to the Father. And this is a lie. The prophet Micah says that he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Any guilt that we have should drive us to the cross. He forgives us and casts away our sins from us. We have no need to dwell in the guilt of our sins. So in humility, we can approach the Father because we recognize our sin and transgressions that are in deafening contrast to the character of Christ. But in confidence, we can approach the Father because he has justified us, adopted us, accepted us, declared us righteous through the work of Christ. We can have complete confidence to approach the Father because he loves his humble children. The certainty of the fullness of our redemption is freeing of any guilt that we might have. I'd like to suggest a horizontal posture that Paul has um, as he prays for his fellow believers. Paul highlights the familial unity and equality we all have under the Father through Christ. This awe-inspiring temple built in the Lord is composed of all tribes and all nations. There is equality between man and woman, adult and child, Jew and Gentile, the learned and the illiterate, the rich and the poor. The theme of the unity of the church runs deep in the book of Ephesians. Paul has just explained in the previous verses how the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. We are part of the same body. And he goes on in the next chapter, which we'll see next week, to encourage the whole body of the church to grow in love and humility. Paul does not pray with an attitude of superiority, but he prays as the very least of these. Now, in your Bibles, there might be a little note at the bottom of the page that says that the Greek word patria, next to family, is closely related to the word for father. The phrasing in Greek is a little difficult for us to make out exactly what Paul means here. There's a lot of uh, discussion among different commentators about who is meant by every family or the whole family. And as far as we can gather from the context, I think it's important to note the significance of the newly enfolded Gentiles into the family of God, also being able to call God the father of their family and sharing a membership in this privileged family. 
Those who belong to the Father are given his name. I think this is what is important here to remember, is that the extent of the whole family of the Father is beyond our comprehension. In heaven and on earth and through time, those who belong to him, we receive his name. We accept his authority in our lives. So now we get to Paul's petition at verse 16. Verse 16 through 19. And you'll notice that there's something interesting about this prayer. This is not a prayer that an unbeliever would make. Paul's prayer is Christ-centered and God-focused. He makes the, the center of his petition that they be that these riches, um, or his rather that his ask is that the riches of the Father's glory would be um, would be given to us. There's nothing about earthly riches, marriage, health, job, or food. Do we only pray like unbelievers? What is the focus of our requests to the Father? What are we aligned with when we pray? Is it the blessing themselves or is it the source of those blessings? We could summarize Paul's prayer like this. He asks for a triune investment in the church. He asks for riches from the Father, power by the Spirit, and life from the Son to love like the Son, so that ultimately, practically, we would be filled with the fullness of God. So here's the first point that Paul is asking for. A prayer according to the riches of the Father's glory. There's an abundance of heavenly riches that Paul has been reminding the Ephesians that we have in Christ. I'd like to take a second to go over these riches that Paul has been explaining to the church in Ephesus. Starting in chapter 1, we were chosen and predestined. We were adopted by the Father. We are redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Christ. In the fullness of time, we will be united with him. We have obtained an inheritance. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Christ. We have hope in Christ and the knowledge of hope. We have immeasurable greatness and power of Christ's resurrection works towards us who believe. We we are recipients of God's rich mercy and great love. We've been made alive. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We are saved by grace. We are God's workmanship. We've been brought near by the blood. Christ is our peace. God has brought down the dividing wall of hostility, and he's reconciled us to God. We have access to the Father. We are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. We are being built into a dwelling place, and we have boldness and confident access to the Father through our faith in Christ. These riches, we have them in Christ. This is our identity. This is who we are. The the Father has granted these to us through Jesus. I've been seeing plenty of articles recently online about uh, the Bitcoin taking a bit of a tumble. And uh, the the, the stock market has been going through a, a bit of a rough time as well. Just this week, Premier Legault announced that there's the possibility that we might be heading into an economic recession. But these riches that are granted to us by the Father, they're not like Bitcoin or gold. 
the American dollar, the euro, any sort of wise investment that we could make into Wall Street. No, these are imperishable. They're eternal. They're unchanging. The world, the flesh, and Satan are our enemy, and they draw us away from the truth of who we are and what we have in Christ. We live in a world that's in an active struggle against the enemy. Paul goes on later in in chapter 6 to tell the church how to engage in spiritual warfare, telling us to put on the armor of God. We're constantly bombarded with counterfeit promises that we will find fulfillment if only fill in the blank. Our purpose is to have financial success in our ventures, to find comfort. Maybe it's to experience as many things as possible, traveling, tasting new foods, or maybe it's when our purpose is to attain the highest knowledge in our field of expertise that we'll find purpose and fulfillment. Or perhaps it's really about our identity. Um, We'll find fulfillment if our identity is to be a good spouse or parent. If it's Um, if we find our place in a team. We'll find our fulfillment if we find, um, we'll find our identity if we find fulfillment in sexuality. To be well-known, to be a good person, to be an accomplished athlete or musician. These things are all secondary when we consider what we have in Christ. When they draw us away from who we truly are in Christ, they erode the very cornerstone of our identity. While they might be good things in themselves, they prove to be empty of lasting worth and fulfillment if they are our identity. And so I I would suggest that we ask ourselves, what is my identity? Where are my riches? This is also a prayer for power through the Spirit. Have you ever tried to, uh, to boost a car battery with another car that also has a dead battery. You can try. You can take as as long as you want, but you're not going to be able to charge that battery. Our inner will is not the source of power we tap into to find strength. No amount of working on yourself can bring about the kind of power Paul is talking about here. We need a power source that is way beyond our own capacity. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our inner being to find strength. Now, why do we need to be strengthened? I would suggest three reasons that we can find here in the text. Number one, strength not to lose heart. Number two, strength for spiritual warfare and fighting sin. And number three, strength to understand and to love like Christ. So number one, strength not to lose heart. If you look at verse 13, it says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It can can become very easy 
to become discouraged, when we see things like church division, our weakness to sin, bitterness among friends or or family members, the frailty of our bodies, suffering, persecution of the church, losing a sense of purpose and and identity in our community. Let's place confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit for strength, to change our inner being. Let's pray for one another that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and that we would not lose heart. A second reason for strength is for spiritual warfare and fighting sin. We are engaged in a battle with the enemy that wants to draw us into sin and divide our allegiance with the Father. If you were to uh, turn on the television on a Saturday morning and put on some cartoons, you probably notice something about the commercials aimed at, at kids. Bright colors, rapid movements to catch the eye, catchy music, and of course, kids having a blast with whatever it is that they're, that they're selling. And as adults, even though we, we know commercials work, we can at least, most of the time anyways, recognize what is happening in the sales pitch of an ad. But for children, their ability to, to recognize that they are being tempted with or what they are being tempted with, is, is rather limited. They need someone to tell them that they can't eat Fruit Loops to their heart's content, or that they can't have every new video, video game or Hot Wheel car. And just like children, we need the Father to give us that strength, the Spirit to empower us to resist sin and engage in spiritual warfare. And number three, the strength to understand and to love like Christ. I'll get back to that in a minute when we, when we get to verse 18. Um, the third point, this is a prayer for indwelling of Christ. The life of Christ in us. Now Paul is speaking to Christians. So why is he praying that Christ would live in their hearts? If we already believe, shouldn't Christ already be there? Let's look at a few other passages to see if we can shed some light on this. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Galatians 2.20. A lot of us know this when I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 4.19 My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I'd like to go back to King Solomon for for a minute. Um, After he prays and dedicates the temple, this is what happens. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, first verses. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple after it um, was a manifestation of the presence of God among his people. There were times, however, when that presence was full and glorious and visible. There's a word used to describe this concept. It's called the Shekinah glory, which is the visible manifestation of the glory of God. Now, the Shekinah glory of God was not always manifested in the temple or the tabernacle. I think there's a parallel here that we can draw with with the church. We are the temple of God, built on the cornerstone, which is Christ. Through prayer for the power that comes from the Spirit, we too will radiate with the fullness of Christ. And so Paul's prayer is that the church, which is God's glory here on earth, would shine visibly and fully to those who see it. It's a prayer that faith would endure, not fail, that our inner being would persevere by faith. A failing faith diminishes the manifestation of Christ in us. So we should ask the Father that he would grant us abundant faith. This is a prayer that Christ would be formed in us, that he would transform our hearts to his likeness. Brothers and sisters, we can have the assurance that the dwelling of Christ in our hearts is secure. We, are, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, but our desire is that the presence, His presence would be manifested in our lives and that the resurrection life of Christ would transform us. Number four, this is a prayer to understand and live the love of Christ. A few weeks ago, Marie, Miriam, and I went up to Cadre la Montagne in the, uh, in the Laurentians. And as we got close to camp, we started realizing the damage that the May 21st storm had caused. I don't know if you remember this one. It, it swept through Toronto and Ottawa and mostly missed Montreal, but went through the Laurentians. There were trees knocked down everywhere. And in particular, there was this one place as we got close to camp where it looked like a tornado had touched down. All the trees were completely uprooted. There was something interesting about what kind of trees they were that were knocked down. Most of them were, uh, were coniferous or evergreens. And so I looked, th- looked this up afterwards because I thought this was interesting. And apparently coniferous trees have um, a shallow or shallower root system, which makes them more susceptible to wind. Another thing that was interesting about this particular section was that the soil was quite sandy as well. The root system of a tree in the ground that it's on allows it to be firmly anchored. And in Paul's prayer, the firm foundation is Christ's love. Christ's love is secure. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Our ability to love one another is to be rooted in Christ's perfect love. Now, trying to understand the limitless dimension of Christ's love is impossible. Paul is praying that we would understand that the love of Christ, that surpasses understanding. He's praying that we would understand something that we can't understand. But this is why we need the Spirit to empower us to understand. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, an infinite love. And I would suggest that understanding Christ's love is not about head knowledge and the ability to describe it and use theological terms to, um, to define it. It's to be experienced and tasted and seen as loved children under the Father. It's to be received from Christ, from Christ and to shown to others. So God's love for us is sufficient. God's love for us is unending. God's love for us can be expressed in us to others. God's Shekinah glory can be seen in the church when we live out Christ's love. And the Holy Spirit strengthens us to understand Christ's love and to live in his love. This is also um, a prayer for the fullness of God in us. The practical purpose of Paul's prayer comes to light at the end of verse 19. We are to seek to be filled with the fullness of God. The pursuit of spiritual maturity comes by knowing and living out the wonderful love of Christ. Theology books are great. Hymns, songs of praise are wonderful. But real spiritual growth begins in our hearts. When we lean into the love of Christ and learn to love day by day the way he loved us. We see this a little bit later um, in chapter 4. Paul puts out this idea that to reach, mature, to reach maturity um, in the idea of a, a growing into a mature man in the knowledge of God. The, uh, the Canadian-American theologian uh, Henry Ironside wrote this. The secret of holiness is heart occupation with Christ. As we gaze upon him, we become like him. Do you want to become like Christ? Let the loveliness of the risen Lord so fill the vision of your soul that all else is shut out. Then the things of the flesh will shrivel up and disappear, and the things of the Spirit will become supreme in your life. This is the only way whereby we may be delivered from the power of the flesh and the principles of the world. Finally, this is a prayer with, with great expectations. Maybe what you've heard this morning is, is discouraging to you. Perhaps you feel inadequate humility or necessary confidence to approach the Father in prayer. Maybe you struggle with even the desire to be empowered by the Spirit or to receive the riches of the Father, or to love like Christ. Here's some extraordinary news. God is able. Above and beyond anything that we could imagine, or dream in our wildest prayer, above and beyond any limitation that we could possibly envision, God is able. God can do more in response to one prayer 
than we can do in a lifetime of planning. The same God who resurrected Christ from the dead is at work in your life and in mine. We see in, uh, in verse 20 or 21, uh, God desires glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Catch that? In the church and in Christ Jesus. He wants to be glorified in you and in me. His infinitely great power is at work in your life and in the life of the church. What a great reminder it is to ask these things of the Father. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.